The Athletic. I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show sponsored by LiveScore. On today's show, how much pre-season is too much pre-season? How hard should you work those boys? Where should you send them? And is it better to test against the best or to crush the weak? We'll find out today. Also on the show, we're talking Southampton, recently acquired by uber-nerd Rasmus Arnixen. Are they the ideal club for the data hub-obsessed FM community? We'll speak to our Saints expert. Live score more than a score is back, and we're off to Germany. Plus, we've got your letters. But first... I'm extremely disappointed to report that the Royal Horticultural Society are at it again. We've analysed their attack. There was a danger, and my ship was not standing by. And so we've dropped down the Apple Leisure podcasts, and they have risen. Now look, here's a secret that no one tells you about podcast charts. They're not actually about total listens. They're about subscriptions and ratings and reviews, all kind of bundled together in narrow timeframes. And we've fallen short. And those green-fingered bastards took advantage. So if you like this podcast, this podcast that will never cost you a penny on my watch, pop onto your podcast provider now and subscribe. Or better yet, rate. Or better yet, yeah, review. And with your help, we'll put the Royal Horticultural Society back on their knees in the mud where they belong. Welcome back to the show, Andrew Sinclair. It's great to be back, Ian. Fourth time, first time this year. Here I am. Lovely to have you. Now, for any new listeners, and goodness me, we've attracted quite a few of those over the last few weeks, uh, what exactly do you do all day, Andrew? I'm the PR and content executive within the, the communications team at Sports Interactive. So I'm sort of our main PR man now. So I, I deal a lot with the media, yourselves at The Athletic included, but I'm also internally responsible for a lot of our written output whether that's pieces on our website so for news stories or announcements or written content for the byline to help people get better at football manager if they aren't good already some good stuff on there i think we plugged a piece of yours last week actually uh on getting the midfield balance right you did indeed that was a piece that got me a lot of love from the uh, korean and chinese communities i think i'm a bit of a tactical wizard (laughs) <laughs> I can safely say there is no one on this planet who thinks I'm a tactical wizard. <laughs> but I am I am working hard. I'm still trying. If you've been following the Newcastle adventures on The Athletic, you will see that I finished my first season, which has brought me to pre-season. And I'm just going to go out there and say it. Pre-season, I think, is everybody's least favourite part of the football manager experience because it's it's what stops you getting into the next bit all you want to do is get going and first you've got to play four to eight meaningless games against the cream of the Chinese first division if you hate it first and foremost we always try and do this of every sector of the game if you hate pre-season is there a way of skipping it yeah I mean you can delegate the training responsibilities to your assistant manager or one of your coaches you can delegate the management of the friendlies to one of your assistants or coaches And if you really even can't be bothered with a transfer business, you can either wrap that up months in advance with pre-contracts and 
whatever, and then skip the press conferences to say how delighted you are to bring those players to your club. Or you can delegate the transfer business in the summer to your director of football or your scouts or, or your assistant manager. So realistically, you can skip most of it. And if you really, really can't be bothered, you could always just holiday until the first game of the season. But <laughs> for me, I think pre-season, it might be underrated and some people might find it a bit dull and a bit boring. But for me, it's one of the most important parts of any season of Football Manager. Well, this is my view as well, not least, and I don't want to give anything away about the second season of the Newcastle Challenge, but I worked really, really hard on pre-season. Because if you do it properly, it can be so crucial to everything, particularly at the start of a save where you're trying to get that team cohesion up as as high as possible because the, the penalties for a lack of cohesion are absolutely brutal. So as an overview, what, what should your objectives be? What are you looking to achieve with pre-season? Well, I mean, the, the main thing you want to do is get your players up to speed for the new campaign physically, mentally and tactically. Now, If you're in your first season at a club and say you've turned the first transfer window off, you can really just drill down into working out what your best team is, working out your tactical approach, and then using however many weeks of training you've got, whether you've got a short pre-season or a long pre-season, to get your players physically ready and get them ready to play the way you want them to play. And the friendlies offer you an opportunity to see them beginning to take on your instructions and gelling, and also hopefully, if you're playing sort of the right calibre of opposition, working out where any problems may lie before you get to the season, so that you don't think everything's tickety-boo and then you get beaten 4-0 on the opening day. So really, you're trying to peak for the start of the season. You get five options at the start for if, if you've got your coaches sorting this out. There's there's light, medium and heavy and then tactical training and technical training. What, what are the trade-offs here? The thing is, if you go hard on the physical stuff, you're going to have a very fit squad, which means in theory, if you want to play a pressing style of football, they're going to be well prepared. But likewise, if you have too long a pre-season or you go too heavy on the physical side, you're probably going to get a lot of muscle injuries at the end of pre-season or the beginning of the season because the players are going to have peaked and then are going to be starting to feel tired again. If you focus too much on the technical tippy-tappy stuff, that's great. Your players are going to be technically quite astute and probably take on board a lot of your tactical approaches, but maybe they aren't going to have the stamina to last the full 90 minutes. So it might be that you're conceding late goals or they don't respond as well to adversity so my feeling is always that you've got to try and find the right balance and it's not about doing the same thing all the way through it's about doing the right thing at the right time so at the beginning it should be a focus on kind of the the training sessions the general ones the ones that are blue on the the training schedule they're sort of holistic generalized sessions that work on a little bit of everything and just generally help your players get up to speed once you've done that, you can start building in the physical sessions, so your endurance, your quickness, your resistance, to get their physical condition and their sharpness up to scratch. And then once that's done, you can focus on ball distribution, defending exercises, and of course, the most important thing, I'm sure, for myself and yourself, Ian, set pieces. Near post corners, always. Um, 
when you're getting the players fit, I tend to, like the first couple of friendlies, I'll have two 11s and I'll just swap them around at half time. And then the final two friendlies, I'll, I'll go for 90 minutes. Is that a good way of getting them into peak condition um, or, or getting all of your key players into peak condition? Or am I just sort of wasting my time here? No, I think that's a very logical and sensible approach, especially if you're fairly settled on what your first 11 looks like. Especially, you know, you with Newcastle, you're moving into a second season. You've probably got a far better grasp on the squad now and who you want to play and where you want them to play than you did when you first joined and you weren't that happy with the squad. Who would be happy with that squad? <laughs> I'm also someone who manages the youth teams and, and their friendlies. So um, as you start to filter out between your first 11 and your second 11, you can you can send your second 11 and, and you can still get them match fit playing under 23 friendlies. Um uh, so useful tip exactly. for if you have exactly. way too much spare time. I would say, though, on the friendlies, you've got to make sure you get the right calibre of opposition because in the save I've currently got on the go, I'm managing the good people of Burnley. I've gone on a pre-season tour of Singapore, which is great. The lads are having a tremendous time, I imagine. <laughs> but uh, in the three friendlies we've played so far, we've scored 51 goals. And that's great. Obviously, everybody's morale is sky high, but... You have to sit there and think, what are they actually learning from that? So it's all about trying to get the right level of opposition. You don't want to get spanked every week and then go into the season with low morale. But at the same time, you don't want to be battering everybody. And then you've got to go in and play Liverpool. And suddenly it's like, OK, my players aren't ready for this. They're quite complacent. And then you, you lose. Ah. Or maybe you could have won. So, yes, those big wins are nice. And they certainly help, particularly your strikers. They help with confidence. They help with morale. But you've also then got to find teams that are going to push you so that you do see mistakes happen that you can address, but also so that your players aren't complacent when the, the real fixtures actually begin. Ah, see, so this was going to be one of my big questions, the risk of inducing complacency. But I guess the, the other thing you've got is you, you want to find out where the holes are. You know, you, you want someone to come at you so you can see if you're if you're ready as much as getting them physically ready. Exactly. And that's the thing. Nobody likes to lose, particularly in Football Manager. But if you lose in pre-season to a team who are on par with you or who are better than you, you can hopefully, if you're actually managing the game yourself or you even just watch it back and watch the highlights, you can kind of work out where the mistakes are happening. That, for me, is why I like to kind of get a good mix of friendly. So, you know, maybe affiliate clubs, local clubs that you're able to help financially and also get a nice big win that your players enjoy and everybody gets some minutes. But also then then finding those tests because you can go, actually, we're not forming the passing triangles that I want us to find. Or if we're having a high defensive line and we're conceding goals to a championship team, how are we going to get on with some of the best top division teams who have really pacey physical front lines. So it's all about testing things and trying things. And if you lose in pre-season, it's not the end of the world because hopefully you'll be learning from those losses so that in the, the regular season, you're converting those losses into to draws or wins. Now, one of the things we've spoken about in the past is if you've got promising young players and you give them, let's say, for, for a Newcastle save, Premier League football. So I've got a couple of one and a half, two star kids in the in the under eighteens. Um, you give them Premier League football, sort of ten, fifteen games. They will very rapidly, if they've got the potential, go up to sort of two and a half, three and a half star players just because they've played football at a higher level. 
Is there anything to be gained by taking these kids on on your preseason tour and sort of giving them half an hour there, half an hour here? Um, do they do they actually improve, or is that just in my head that they're improving because they're getting used to hanging around with the senior players? I think it, it, it's a bit of both, really. Obviously, if they're just with you for preseason, then you dump them back down to the under twenty threes or the under eighteens. You aren't going to get so much of a long term impact, but if you were intending to keep them in the first team squad for the rest of the season, then then yeah, preseason's a great experience for them to learn stuff. You know, if you go on a training camp, for example, and it gives you the opportunity to, to include your youth prospects, generally training camps help the team cohesion stuff come together quicker because you're all away together, you're all bonding, generally everybody gels a bit better. And if you're going to use your preseason for a little bit more than just tactics, matches and transfers, you're actually going to focus on, you know, squad development, for example, you can help those young players in a more holistic way. So, for example, I tend to use preseason to set up my mentoring groups for the season ahead. If you promote those youngsters to the first team, you can include them in the mentoring group. So you can do that a variety of different ways. You can do it a blend of ages. So you could pick a couple of the oldest players in the squad and some of the youngest ones. You can do it based on personalities, where they sit in the squad hierarchy or potentially one of the options I often do is by position. So you could kind of put the goalkeepers together and hopefully you've got the oldest one is, is the most senior. And then your third choice keeper is maybe, you know, a youngster who's 18, 19. And that will help their personality change. And when their personality changes, that will then put them in better stead when they step up to the first team for real, because they'll be far more prepared for it. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm deeper into the game when the new gens start coming through. For obvious legal reasons, you can't refer to a professional football as lacking determination or, or being weak-willed or anything like that. But when the new gens come through, it's not unusual to have a sort of five-star potential player who's just a massive dickhead. Um, and then this is the only way to salvage them. Exactly. And I mean, I've got, in the save I've currently got, as I, as I mentioned with Burnley, I've got a five-star right-back in my under-23s. He looks like one of the best new gens I've ever, I've ever found in the game, but he's got a fickle personality. Well, I don't want to bed him into the first team with that personality. So I want to bring him into the first team picture, but he's still you know logged as a prospect, so he's not expecting a lot of minutes. But he's in a, a mentoring group with a Jack Cork, a Ben Mee, senior players that he's going to learn something from and who have the right kind of personality types that will hopefully lead to an improvement in his personality and the, the traits he's got moving forward. So what, what are some of the most common mistakes that people make in pre-season? One of them is training, and it's getting the training right. I think there's a, a misapprehension that pre-season is all about physical prep and it's all about getting your players fully fit. And then I think people over-rely on the physical training sessions. As I mentioned before, that, that can lead to muscle injuries, which then mean in the early weeks of the season, you can't play your first-choice team. There's the difficulty between a long and a short pre-season. A long pre-season is good if you've got a large squad or you've got a lot of new faces coming in because it gives you more time to bed people in, gives you more time to get everybody up to speed and you can have some more friendlies. But it also means that those players have had a shorter off-season. So if they were particularly tired at the end of the last season, they're more likely to get tired quite quickly again in the new campaign. That issue is alleviated if you have a short pre-season, but obviously you then have less time to tinker with your tactics and whatever. So you could go into the, the new campaign a little half-cooked. Um, 
And so he's trying to find the right balance there and working out that you don't have to do everything straight away, but you also don't want to leave everything till the last week beforehand. I think another one is that I think sometimes people have too many friendlies. Like, I'm not sure it does your players any good to be playing every other day for six weeks up until you start the season. I don't know that they're going to learn a lot from that. Well, the, the more games they have, the less time on the training field, isn't it? Well, exactly. I think no more than two games a week is, is probably the right attitude. And I would also say your last friendly should probably be a week before your first league or cup game. Because that means that you're done. And then that last week can just be focusing on training for the opposition you've got up first. You can switch your preparation to thinking, okay, well, we're bigger than them. So maybe we should be focusing on our set piece deliveries or maybe they're taller than us. So we need to be focusing on aerial defence or whatever their style. They might have a a controlled possession based style. So you maybe want to look at counterattacking options. So for me, that's the way you've got to go about it. There comes a point where it's like, right, we're prepped. Everybody's fit. Everybody's ready to go. Now we look ahead to the season and actually do what a real manager would do and actually sit down and think, okay, what approach do we need to take for the first game, the second game and, and so on? That is absolutely perfect. That is a comprehensive guide to pre-season. And that was Andrew Sinclair. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ian. Happy to be back on the show. It's more than a score. It's live score. So what's all this about then? Well, with Live Score, which I'm certain you've all downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get the latest action, stats and analysis from around the world. Because we know if football goes beyond scores, it's the stories from the pitch and the stands, players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. Yes, essentially this is a guide to exciting new saves. And where's more exciting? And Germany. I know, I know, we've done Germany already, but over at The Athletic, we've just unveiled a new roster of German experts because you need a whole roster to replace a raffer. Seb Stafford-Bloor, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me in, Macintosh. It's an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. So what's going on? Why are there so many more German experts on The Athletic at the moment? Well, because it needs 10 of us, well, five of us, to make one Rafa Honigstein. Rafa has fair. taken a little bit of a break and we have kind of assembled like a kind of Bundesliga Avengers team. And we hope that between us we'll cover all the areas that people are interested in. So why are people interested in German football? What's, what's so special about it? A couple of things. I think if someone knew nothing about German football other than this, it would be that the atmosphere is great. I think the experience of going to German football is a little bit different, whereas uh, most of us who grew up in England, if you go to football, you're treated as a as someone that's doing something a little bit illicit. I think you know most people would be able to um, to understand that. Whereas in German football, it feels a little bit more like a day out. You're allowed to drink. There's great food. It's great colour. It's cheap, which is the most important thing. You don't have to sell a kidney to go to a game in Germany. <laughs> I know that's very, very difficult for you to relate to, but it is a good selling point. And also... I think you have, okay, the, the knock on German football is always that, um, or certainly over the last decade, has been that Bayern Munich are very dominant and have a fantastic financial advantage over everybody. Yes, but you can still find some amazing stories. And, hey, we had one last night. St. Pauli, one of my local clubs, not Borussia Dortmund, out of the, the Pokal. And this was a full-strength Dortmund with Holland and Royce and everybody else. And St. Pauli, who, 
again, a lot of people know of, but probably aren't that cognizant of the actual football that they play because they represent something so much bigger. They managed to sneak over the line 2-1 and they play very, very well in doing so. And so I, I think the idea is, well, sort of the the perception is of a slightly more egalitarian model, um, particularly obviously with with the 50 plus one and the kind of the, the aversion to not just foreign investment, but investment generally taking clubs away from fans. And I, I think that's a, particularly now, that's a very nice USP to have for a, a football league. Now, if you're going to take your football manager save to Germany, there, there's a few things that jump out straight away. I mean, the, yeah. there's there's far fewer games for starters. You've only got 34 games in the Bundesliga. There's only the one domestic cup competition. Yeah. But is there anything yeah. else that that you know you, you should know if you're heading in there? Any different rules or anything? Yeah, well, I think um, for those who who like the restoring the fallen giant challenge, which I've always been seduced by, a little bit more difficult now because the uh, Zweite Bundesliga, which is second tier, the German's version of the championship, is full of fallen giants. In fact, there are probably more big clubs at the moment in the Zweite Bundesliga than there are in the Bundesliga. And it's a kind <laughs> of a, a point of contention in German football because what the, the Bundesliga, one of the, the discussions is what the Bundesliga is losing without Schalke, without Hamburg, without Werder, Werder Bremen. You know, if you have all of these teams in a, in the second tier, great for the second tier. It makes for a wonderful competition, but it's with with all due respect, your your Bochums and your Augsburgs, and I'm God, I'm doing the plural thing. Sorry, um, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Germany. I've brought that over from England. Really sorry. It's a diluted competition, and that's particularly when the competition is dominated by one club. So if you are going to drop down then don't expect an easy ride because there are five or six clubs down there who have suffered from long periods of dysfunction and find themselves outside of the Bundesliga. So it's um, not quite as easy as it might be. So you've got Hamburg and Schalke down there. Who else is uh, lurking beneath the surface? Right, well, you've got Werder Bremen. They are another club who were until last season in the Bundesliga. At the top of it, you've actually got two... Well, we've talked about St. Pauli already. They're leading the division. Darmstadt are having an excellent, excellent, excellent season. Um, they're Nuremberg are down there, another, another fallen giant of German football. Not quite in the same way as, as Hamburg and Schalke, because I suppose Hamburg and Schalke's declines, particularly Schalke's, was a kind of um, point-and-laugh type situation because they couldn't get out of their own way and... Uh, their recruitment and their coaching appointments were just a disaster. I would say that's the main hub. Darmstadt are very, very good to watch. I know that um, I know that there isn't a lot of Zyder Bundesliga coverage in the UK anymore. There used to be, uh, but they're a very, very good watch. I think in a way they epitomise, as some Pali do actually, they epitomise the culture of that league, which is that you can have all your very strong players, you can have your you can have your celebrated teams in your big stadiums, but at the end of the day, chaos reigns in the Zyder Bundesliga, and silly things happen in a way that kind of defeats the, the financial hierarchy or the kind of reputational hierarchy. Uh, and it feels like I'm, I'm, I'm working on behalf of some kind of uh, propaganda board here, but it's, it's honestly one of the most entertaining divisions you could ever see. And um, if you manage in it, it will be absolute turmoil. So fair warning. Tactically in German football, is it all gegen pressing or, or could you actually go and be a really patient possession team? No, it's very vertical. It's very, very vertical. Obviously, people will, will think of Jürgen Klopp and Tom, Thomas Tuchel, but uh, the legacy survives. So if you watch Mainz today, both Svensson's Mainz, both Svensson actually played under Tuchel and Klopp when he was a centre-half. They're very vertical. They're very wedded to the idea that when you retrieve the ball, it must immediately go forward. Uh, he, His players are entirely committed to pressing like a swarm of bees. And not in that kind of order of, oh, well, we'll wait for the ball to go out towards the touchline, then we'll press. It's a whenever the opposition... Uh, 
you know, back four, centre-back, goalkeeper. Whenever the ball is there, we press, we press, we press, we press. It looks exhausting. And I suppose, in answer to one of your first questions, I, th I suppose this is one of the other great selling points of German football. It's fun, it's quick, and it's aggressive, and there isn't a lot of possession for the sake of possession. And it is a little bit of a generality because you can find teams which are who are more conservative than others. I wouldn't say that Augsburg, for instance, are a you know, particularly dynamic side. It feels like I'm picking on them, but they're not. But generally speaking, if you sit down to watch a Bundesliga game on you know a Saturday afternoon, you'll be able to find one which is quite basketball-like and quite aggressive and one where players don't defer to security as much as they might do in other leagues. And that's... Um, you know, that makes it a lot more fun. Nice. Epstaff Blore, we can find you on the always entertaining TIFO football podcast. If you've never listened to that, give it a go. It, it's unconventional compared to the other ones, but it's fast becoming one of my favourites. It is pretty weird, isn't it? That, that Joe Devine, he's just, you know. He's not to be trusted. It's a terrible human being. Terrible uh, absolutely. Human being. Uh, reprehensible is, is, yeah. is a word that could have been written for a man who would deliberately go out of his way to sabotage a trip to the Red Bull headquarters. So racing rigs. I watched that video that you're talking about there and you were real world annoyed, I think. I, I was genuinely, you could see my face was getting flushed because just the idea, if, if you haven't seen this, go on to YouTube and search for TIFO uh, Red Bull, uh, where we took a, a whole pack of people to their driving simulators and uh, worked with their esports drivers to have a really big organized Grand Prix and Joe Devine ruined it. He did. He really ruined it. Yeah, <laughs> he really did. Vengeance will be mine. Seb Stafford-Bloor, TIFO, general legend, and doing loads more in German football for The Athletic. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Ian. That was It's More Than a Score with Live Score. You can get real-time updates and results, match highlights, and breaking news from around the football world on the Live Score app. And it's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. Now, I know that almost everyone listening to this show is an athletic subscriber. You know, it, it, it makes sense. You're intelligent people. You play football manager. You've got demonstrably long attention spans. Why wouldn't you subscribe to the outlet with the best journalists writing the, the, the best stuff? I mean, there's so much on there. Just so many tens of thousands of fresh, wonderful words every single day. You'd be, you'd be crazy not to get involved. You, you mean you're not? You haven't? Good Lord, what on earth is holding you back? Stop everything and right now type in theathletic.com forward slash fmpod because if you've never subscribed before, there's an offer there for you. And I tell you, you're not going to regret it. That is theathletic.com forward slash fmpod. So, I'm sure you will have seen quite recently that Southampton Football Club were acquired um, after a, a very short spell with uh, with a Chinese owner. They were acquired by uh, Rasmus Arnixson, who did such great work at Brentford. And... You know, his presence in the club makes it quite clear the way this is going to be run. This is this is not going to be run as a sort of empty-headed exercise in short-termism, all of which means it's a kind of fascinating save to play in Football Manager. And we just wanted to talk to someone who actually really knows about that club. Welcome to the show, Dan Sheldon, Southampton correspondent for The Athletic. Thank you for having me on, Ian. It's an absolute pleasure. Dan, for anyone who doesn't know your work and hasn't got a subscription to The Athletic... <laughs> A shame. What exactly is a, is a general day for you? So day to day, I, I kind of report on, on the going, what happens at Southampton Football Club. It's January at the moment, so obviously the transfer window's open. They're not exactly busy, but 
you're trying to find out from agents what's going on there, speaking to people you know inside the club, are you considering any players? Who are you looking at? What type of players are you targeting? That's kind of the, the phone call side of it. And then obviously do a lot of writing. So today I'm going to be pulling together a, a big kind of profile piece on the new owners, which will run ahead of the Man City game. So quite timely we're talking about them. Absolutely. Let's take advantage. Uh, so remind us, who is actually taking over the club? So the group is called Sport Republic, and that is a group which is co-owned by, as you've already mentioned, Rasmus Ankerson, former co-director of football at Brentford, and a businessman called Henrik Kraft. Now, their lead investor is a Serbian billionaire called Dragan Solak. He's fronted most of the cash to, to buy the football club. And they're looking at a multi-club model. Southampton are the first of you know several clubs they hope to buy, and are seen as kind of the focal point or, or anchor club or however you'd like to, to name it. And the plan is to have several satellite clubs branching off from Southampton in, in the future. Now, the first thing to remember here is that this isn't one of those stupid leverage deals where they come in, take money out of the club and use it to um, pay off in instalments. This uh, they, They've been bought lock, stock and barrel, haven't they? Yes. Yeah, I've been assured by multiple sources that this is a cash buyout. So you know, no club... No, no money has been leveraged against Southampton Football Club to make this purchase happen in the same way that Burnley was sold to ALK Capital at the beginning of 2021. You know, that was a completely leveraged buyout. Dragon, as I understand it, has, you know, he's obviously a wealthy individual, has just fronted the cash. They bought Southampton, it's theirs. It, it was a cash purchase. It must be nice having that kind of money line about to go and buy a football club if you've got some spare cash. So. <laughs> The new owners, they cited a number of positives about the club. Um, what are they? Why, why did they pick this one? Well, I think historically people look at Southampton and you, you kind of think of the academy. I know it is kind of weird to talk about the academy when Brentford ditched theirs and obviously Rasmus had such a huge role at Brentford, but I don't think that will be the case at Southampton where they're going to get rid of their academy. But they look at a team like Southampton. Southampton know what they are. You know, They know they're not going to be kind of Europa League they're not going to get into the Europa League. They're not going to get into the Champion Champions League. They're not going to be fighting for for league titles. You know, they're kind of a middle of the run Premier League club that wants to bring in young players, develop them, and sell them on for more money. I think when you look at Sport Republic and their plans, that that fits perfectly because Brentford have shown that you know they all can also sign kind of young players from relative obscurity and turn them into into brilliant Premier League players as they've done this season. So. They saw Southampton were already doing that and I think it's kind of put the two ideals together and that's where they ended up. But you look at Southampton from a, an investor's point of view, you know, you've got a, a state-of-the-art training ground that's already there. You know, that was only built kind of 10 years ago. They've obviously got the stadium. There are a lot of things going for Southampton. They've got a stable a manager that's been there for a little while. You know, the, the board are very good at, at the club as well. So I could see why it would have been an attractive kind of acquisition for them. Now, this is Rasmus Arnixson. He's got a, a long track record of building sensible recruitment, not just in the, the players that he signs, but the, the people working behind the scenes who, who do so much of the legwork with data. How rare is, is this sort of thing? Because certainly if you cast your eye at Everton and Manchester United, they're doing pretty much the opposite and just buying anything shiny that moves within their eye line. How is Southampton going to act now? I think it probably wasn't that long ago everyone was talking about Southampton and their black box, the mystical black box that spotted Mane and all these players. So Southampton have been using data for a long time. Um, under Gao Sheng, their, their previous owner, you know, money was tight and they were there to recruit in a certain way and they had a, a budget of around £15 million per player. Um so they would use so much data and analysis to make sure that when they signed a player for that kind of money, that they would be absolutely what the club needed. You know, they couldn't afford 
for that signing to go wrong. They had to hit the, the jackpot every single time. So data has been a key way of how Southampton operates. However, I would fully expect Rasmus to have his own input on that. Now, he's not going to be on the board on a day-to-day business, but I'd be shocked if he's not having some kind of input into, well, this this worked really well at previous clubs I've been at. Are you doing it here? Well, if not, I think, you know, we could look at doing this. I'm sure he's going to be making those suggestions. Southampton have obviously got a lot of assets in place already. Who are the three key players that you want to keep? So you've got James Ward-Prowse in central midfield, obviously the club's captain, set-piece extraordinaire and the embodiment of what Ralph Hasenhutl wants from from his players. I think he, you can't understate how important he is to that football club. He most definitely is their, their biggest asset. Beyond that, you've got Tino Livermento, the young right-back they signed from Chelsea, who, who's injured at the moment, but has been doing really, really well since he came in. You know, only 18 years old, hadn't played senior football before joining the club and went straight in at right-back on the first game of the season and, and didn't look back there too. And then you've got, Mohamed Salasu, I'd probably say, is the third, you know, another young-ish central defender. I think he's 22. He is one the club look at and think, you know, in, in two years' time, he could quite easily be worth £50 million. So they are the three kind of biggest assets that the club have at the moment. And, of course, you've got that long track record of, of youth development there. Who's next on the production line? Who's shining for the under-23s and the under-18s right now? There's a midfielder called Ryan Finnegan, who I wrote about on The Athletic, actually, as kind of the, the young player to watch. And then, of course, I'd write that and he would pick up an injury. <laughs> but he is one that you know people around the club speak very highly of. He was given a professional contract not so long ago. And they've also got Thierry Small, who they signed from Everton in the summer, but he was kind of a step up anyway. You know, He'd been training with the first team at Everton, so he looks very good in, in, in an under-23 side, as does Danel Simu, a central defender they signed from Chelsea again. A little bit older, but Ryan Finnegan, you know, 18 years old, he is one that I am personally keeping an eye out on just based on the conversations I've been having with people who coach him, who know him and what, you know, important people at the club think about him. And Dan, I know you don't play football manager because you actually have a proper job um, that requires time and attention. But if you did, what do you think would need to be done to make Southampton a, a Champions League side? Uh, find a lot of money. <laughs> find a cheat that you can I don't know like in the sims where you could kind of do mother load and just <laughs> add unlimited money to your account and build the best house no I think if if for example you had I don't know 200 million to spend like Newcastle what could you spend it on what would be the most pressing area of attention it kind of goes without saying you'd buy a top class striker you'd probably go and get Mbappe from PSG I think Southampton if one area where they're they're kind of lacking they don't have a striker that's going to score 20 to 30 goals a season since they sold Danny Ings that would make a huge difference I also think you could buy another central defender top quality central defender to go alongside Salasu I also wouldn't be averse to a top quality goalkeeper so if I was going to go for if I had 200 million pound and realistically the players I'd want would be expensive I'd probably go goalkeeper central defender and a striker as the, the ones I think that would push Southampton towards the top four and Sheldon, thank you so much. Uh, we find you on The Athletic, obviously. Can we find you on Twitter too? Uh, yes, it's at Dan Sheldon Sport. Excellent stuff. Get right on that straight away. Thanks, Dan. No, thank you, Ian. It's time for your letters. You know how to get in touch with us. It's imacintosh at theathletic.com or find me on Twitter, Ian underscore 
games. Mark Ald, who is from Cornwall, when I said a couple of weeks ago that I was um, briefly on the books of Falmouth Town, he, he referenced at least three of my former drinking haunts there, which were very good reasons why I was not on the books at Falmouth Town for very much longer. Anyway, he wrote with some tips for lower league management that are really good. He said, regularly offer about 20 to 30 released players from higher quality club four-week trials as soon as the released player lists are in the newsfeed. That, that's a, a great tip. Um, arrange loads of pre-season friendlies at home to get the following benefits. A chance to actually watch your trial players uh, and improve the knowledge quicker than scouting. Because what happens a lot of the time, particularly if you're doing a no badges thing, is that you won't know anything about these these players at all. You'll just basically be pulling them in completely blind. So yeah, loads of loads of preseason friendlies can really help, and that will enable you to figure out who to actually sign and provide additional revenue in preseason. Uh, the result is a better quality young team that grows and has increased fitness stamina. All perfect tips for anyone in the lower league. Thank you, Mark Ald. Uh, Andrew Ramsey, uh, he actually wrote in a few weeks ago about Ultimate FM Challenge and I managed to lose the letter. Now, you might remember Ultimate Football Challenge. It's kind of like the Pentagon Challenge, but if anything a little bit harder. Andrew said he's a fan of the show, but he has one bugbear. Every single show, you say that the Pentagon Challenge is really difficult or impossible. I mean, I'm, I'm standing by that. Uh, FM can be easier or more difficult depending on how you play it. If somebody creates their own tactics from scratch, then success will be slow until they master this side of the game. It's obvious that you, Ian McIntosh, enjoy the tactical side. I would say enjoy is too strong a word. I think I just about survive it. Anyway, if you download a game-breaking tactic from a forum, that obviously speeds that side of things up, although that's considered borderline cheating by some. Um, however, if someone is generally able to be successful at the game, the Pentagon Challenge should take 20 seasons at most. Honestly, you should give it a try. I've got to be honest, even with this as my job, I probably wouldn't get 20 seasons done, but that is largely because I insist on managing all the youth teams. But there you go. If, if you've done the Pentagon Challenge or the Ultimate Football Manager Challenge and you've had the same success as Andrew Ramsey, let, let us know. Give us hope here for those of us who are still struggling. Mike Ray likes a challenge. He's managing Newcastle. Uh, he wrote in to say that he was doing that, but with no summer spending. Owners wanted a top half finish, which seemed pretty optimistic. Damn right. But in his first eight league games, he won five. Thought he cracked it. He had not cracked it. In the 13 games remaining before the transfer window opened, he won once. But at least he was in 12. He bought <gasps> Balotti, Tarkovsky, Callum Chambers, Livakovic, Ginter, Grilic and Seblos, all at a cut rate, and their market value for Renato Sanchez, Pedraza and Julian Alvarez, who is stellar, uh, sold almost every recognisable Newcastle player. And the new group started really well, won eight games, and then crashed to mid-table. And no matter what he did, he couldn't get out of mid-table. So it feels like there's a kind of Ides of March vibe here that no matter what I do in second season, I will screw up. Good news, though, Mike is now managing Gateshead and having much more fun. Ben Pearson, I think I'm pronouncing that right, wanted to announce to the outer world that he's won back-to-back -back promotions with Frem in his back Frem the Dead save. They used to be the Danish champions ages ago. He wanted to rebuild them, dominated the first season with a man called Oliver Anderson scoring lots of near-post corners. Second season, Mad Nordum dominated and uh, won the league again. Third season in the Danish second tier, promoted again with goals from a Nicolo Kudridge from Juventus under-23s. Now getting a bit worried he's overstretched himself getting to the top flight so quickly. So any advice? Loan market. 
just put three or four players who've got experience at that level and that will definitely help you out. And finally, Peter Jan Klassen says that he was listening to the podcast and a question came up about reversing shouts. I don't know if you've ever done this. I literally did this yesterday where you berate your team and they score and then the shout goes through and then your team is like a sea of red faces because they're furious. It seems like you can actually quickly make a sub, confirm it, and then immediately cancel the changes during the highlight, and that cancels the shout. There's a good tip there. I'll have to give that a go next time. We've got some more letters as well with questions for Sports Interactive, and that means, hello, producer Steve. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? I'm all right. I am all right. How's your Fiorentina save going? It is going very well. Now, I know that... People prefer the Misery's Company vibe. But if I'm honest, I've done two seasons already. Finished fifth my first season. They were 13th last season, so that's an improvement. Qualified for the Europa League. Won the Europa League, despite being 1-0 down in my first semi-final leg against Atalanta. I beat Chelsea in the Europa League 3-0. Bloody hell. So, like, I'm, I'm sort of thinking, is this just, like, the FM22 beginner's luck of, first, of a first save and then... Well, no. All FMs, your first save is basically a car crash because you inevitably try and use whatever tactics worked for you on the previous one and it all goes wrong and you you just, it's a cost of doing business. You're going to lose about 25 hours of time being awful. So <laughs> you're, I think the first person I've ever heard of who's just bounced in and, and had fun. Christ, what, what's having fun like? <laughs> Do you know what? It's great. It's really great. I'm not going to lie. And also... There's obviously a bit of lag when, when we started FM22, right? So the first thing that I did was signed Dusan Vlahovic to a massive long-term deal, which obviously in, in IRL, there's a lot of talk about him going somewhere potentially. Either way, I've got him for years now, so they're going to have to pay me a lot of money to take him out of my cold, dead hands. But um, yeah, it's going really well. And I am just thankful for all the knowledge that we're getting from various people, from the SI guys, from the listeners, writing in with their tips too. Wow, you're living proof that the show works. Exactly. I just wish that I was living proof that the show works. But <laughs> there you go. What have we got in the mailbag? Speaking of help and advice from SI, uh, Johnny Nixon has written in, and he's also managing Newcastle. He inquired to Rafinha, obviously Leeds United's Rafinha, to his agent, and to uh, his surprise, Leeds were only after about £40 million for him, which is a bit of a bargain, really, when you consider the level Rafinha's at. Johnny told his director of football to buy him and, crucially, put a maximum offer amount at £40 because he had that inside information. And to my surprise, I found an email indicating we'd had a £76.25 offer accepted for him. So his question is, do you know why my director of football has taken it, taken it upon himself to almost double the max offer amount that I set? So what did I say? Well, congratulations, Johnny Nixon, because you found a bug. Oh, uh, as I say, it's extremely rare for this to happen in game, but it is a bug and we appreciate you flagging it with us. Uh, we're picking up with the design team now, so I'd imagine you could expect to see it rubbed out in a future update. It says, um, if you are fearful of overpaying when you're director of football is determined to do a deal you can use staff responsibilities to make sure that you as a manager have the final say on finalizing any deals this can be found under find and sign players for the first team finalizing player signings for a club alternatively just buy them yourself that's what i do i, I like spending other people's money who else have we got 
We have Jasmine Jones, who's written in, and she says, hope you, Ian, and the pod team are well. Thank you very much, Jasmine. She mentioned seeing an interesting thread on Reddit by Dai Pan Feng that she wanted to run by us. One user says that instead of scouting players to bring in on loan, they like to make offers for all of them and then wait for in-game fans to vote on who they like best in the game's social media. I like thinking that I can trust my fans to know who would be quality, and the poll seems to be quite accurate as to who is better than who, which is a really interesting sort of workaround for scouting, isn't it? So the question is, what do you think about this? And also, do you know what the data is based on? Player reputation is in there, but does it reflect actual skill or is it just things like the team they're coming from? So what was the answer to this from Sports Interactive? Well, first of all, I do not have the words for how horrified um, <laughs> someone would conduct transfer policy like this. But then again, you you look at Everton and Manchester United and you do wonder. Uh, as I said, fans like to think they know more about football than people directly involved in the game. And in some cases, without naming names, they may be right. But do any real-life managers use social media polls to determine signings? And if not, are they missing a trick? A football manager, fans have an idea but like real life, not necessarily the right idea. They'll look at a proposed player, compare it against the club's existing options. That'll take a few things into account. Certainly the need of the club. You know, there's no point signing another striker if you've only got one fit goalkeeper and he's four foot eleven tall. The player's career so far, recent performances. However, if even the finest scouts can unearth an occasional dud, I'm afraid, say SI, sometimes the fans can also get on a Bebe bandwagon more likely to find reserve team football than championship glory. So uh, I think that's a completely mad way of buying players. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's a free world. You, you play this game however you want. That's our letters. If you want to write into us, it's imacintosh at theathletic.com or find me on Twitter, Ian underscore games. And that was the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. Your guests today were Andrew Sinclair from Sports Interactive, Seb Stafford-Bloor off the TIFO, Dan Sheldon from The Athletic. Your producer was Steve Hankey, and I am Ian McIntosh, and I'm off to watch PMQs. The Athletic.